Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 to 12. Then continue uh, chapter 49 from verses 28 through to chapter 50, ending in verse 21. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I could tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my first, my, my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honour, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre in Canaan, where Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full forty days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have favor, found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land, land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. 
All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he did, as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite among the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of, the, of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children and be rest assured and spoke kindly to them. Thanks, Ray. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all uh, as we finish our series in Genesis, which we've been going through uh, over a number of years now. Um, it's a bit of a bittersweet thing. It's good to get to the end, but Genesis is a, a really great, wonderful book. Uh, and no less these final chapters. Uh, we need God's help always when it comes to understanding his word, so I'm going to ask God now to help us. Father God, we need you. We need you to know you and to understand your word. So we ask that you would help us, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our minds to hear not only what you were saying and how you were dealing with your ancient people back then, but what you would be saying to us now. Please help us hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, although casinos uh, deny it these days, uh, it's thought that in the past, some casinos actually employed people called coolers. Have you heard, heard of coolers? A cooler is a particularly unlucky person. 
Uh, someone whose mere presence at the gambling table seems to bring a, a streak of bad luck for the other players. So if a gambler is doing really well and beating the house over and over, they'll, sa- they'll send in the cooler uh, to sit next to them and dampen their luck and save the casino from losing money. <laughs> now, this might be an urban legend, but I reckon uh, the church father, Augustine, I reckon he believed in them. Uh, not so much in the casino, in casinos, but in life generally. Uh, when it comes, when it, when things take a turn for the worse, he thought that there are coolers and that he calls them demons, demons mediating misery to all. They're like the ultimate coolers, <laughs> invisible, always nearby, and constantly sucking life from us, leaving us only with suffering and death, like we're cursed something. And I reckon there's something to this. So, in the face of such coolers, how do we turn our luck around? Is it even possible when we're just so constantly weighed down by death around us and suffering, our own and others? What I reckon that these final chapters in Genesis show us that it's not only possible, but that God's promised blessing comes as he redeems the worst that the world throws at us. But first, uh, let's remember quickly uh, where we've come, for, come from and, and the book of Genesis as a whole. It's, it's an epic story. It's got the best start of any story. In the beginning, God. Like, that's epic, right? That's massive. That's so cool. Uh, God created everything. There's nothing more epic than that. You can't get a bigger story than this or a better one. He makes people, Adam and Eve. And they dwell in God's place, the Garden of Eden, with God in perfect harmony. And so when we read only a a few short chapters later that Adam and Eve disobey God, and then suffering and death rush in after it to break the world with curses, curses that we're still under, you can't get a bigger or badder problem. But it's a problem that God wants to fix, that he's always wanted to fix, Even though it's a problem of our own making, God doesn't want us to live forever with all the bad. He doesn't want people to live under the curse of suffering and death. And so he seeks to reverse the curse. He looks to bless the world instead. And he looks to do this through some promises. Promises that he made to the man Abraham, who we're introduced to in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, And they're promises that God makes worth going over because... They're kind of like the strings that the rest of the, uh, the Genesis kite flies from, right? Uh, and there's three big ones. Firstly, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. Secondly, to give his descendants the promised land in Canaan. And thirdly, to bless the whole world through him. And as we've seen through the book of Genesis, these, these problems, uh, sorry, these promises, and the blessings attached to them, they get passed on to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to Isaac's son, Jacob, who we've seen, his sons, uh, in these last chapters in Genesis, they've been a little bit of a worry. <laughs> but after 13 long years, Jacob, he's reunited with his son, Joseph, who, unbeknownst to him, was sold into slavery by his other sons. But Joseph is now the Prime Minister of Egypt, overseeing the biggest grain collection and distribution project in the world. Not only that, he forgives his brothers and he brings his dad, Jacob, and his brothers and their families to settle in Egypt 
and as such they escape the severe famine at the time, and it's there, safe in Egypt, that Jacob looks to close things out well just before he dies. He insists that his bones be buried in the promised land rather than in Egypt, which is a sign of his ongoing faith in God's promises. But then he looks to, to pass on the blessings of these promises to his sons, which is what holds this passage that we're looking at today all together. God's promised blessings. Firstly, as we see them advancing through Abraham's heir, particularly his son Judah, confirmed in Jacob's death and understood through suffering, as we see God reversing the curse and bringing blessing. So that's where we're going today. God's promised blessing through Abraham's heir, even in death and even in suffering. So, first up, God's promised blessing through Abraham's heir. Jacob gathers his 12 sons together. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob prophesies over them. Verse 1, we read, Jacob called for his sons and he said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. And then he blesses them. So verse uh, 28 says, And this is what their father said to them after he'd spoken all the words, the prophecies that he had over all the 12 of his sons. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Now, you could be forgiven uh, for thinking that some of the things that he actually says to his boys aren't really blessings uh, but curses, particularly the first three. You might have picked it up. Reuben, Simeon and Levi. Uh, But... they've proved themselves to be immoral and bloodthirsty men. As the first in line to inherit the promised blessings, clearly Jacob doesn't see them as worthy. Indeed, they might even jeopardise such blessings. So it's a blessing for the whole nation of Israel to come that they don't inherit the blessings. (laughs) Instead, it falls on the next in line. That's Judah. Now, Judah... Uh, he's been far from a model brother, or father-in-law, for that matter, in the past. But he's grown. He's grown in character and he's grown in faith, particularly as he's confronted with the demands of his bro- brother Joseph as the Prime Minister of Egypt, before he knew that he was his brother, uh, who he sold into slavery. We see that he actually owns his guilt for that. He offers to take punishment due to his younger brother Benjamin, and he does all this to save their father Jacob from further grief. Judah... He's a reforming man, a man that God's clearly been working on. So he's the son that Jacob uh, passes on God's promises, blessing, promised blessings to. And interestingly, it looks like those promised blessings through Judah are actually going to be through a dynasty in Judah and through wine. Right, so a dynasty and wine. So verse 8, Judah... Uh, Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. It seems the king of Israel... The king of all the tribes of Israel is going to be from the tribe of Judah. All the other sons or tribes will bow down to Judah. Someone from the tribe of Judah will always be king over Israel. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And eventually one of Judah's descendants will rule not just over uh, the nation of Israel, but over all nations. Now, 
about 700 years after this, the famous King David, he will come. And he's from the tribe of Judah. And he'll rule over the tribes of Israel and his son Solomon after him. And for a little bit, but only for a little bit, for the, but even those descendants after him, after David and Solomon, who rule over some of the tribes of Israel, none of them ever rule over all the nations. That is, until Jesus of Nazareth rocks up, a thousand years after David, 1700 years after Judah. He's a descendant of David. He's a descendant of Judah. And he's crucified the king of the Jews, the king of those in the tribe of Judah, the tribe that will rule over Israel, and raised to life as king of all. And he now has countless millions across the world in all nations who trust him and obey him. As such, he fulfills the promised blessing to Abraham of a descendant of his blessing the nations as he dies on a Roman cross to bring anyone who relies on him God's forgiveness. His forgiveness for the rubbish ways that they've thought of him and treated him. And this, God's forgiveness, this is the most supreme blessing. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God Almighty. Peace with God forever. So Judah is the son of Jacob who, who God passes on his promised blessings to through a dynasty that reaches its climax in King Jesus, son of David, son of Judah. But what about uh, the whole wine thing in verse 11? You know, we're told he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Well, the idea of uh, tethering a donkey to the choicest vine suggests there's so many good grapes there, uh, too many in fact, so it doesn't matter if uh, a donkey eats them. There's so much good grape, in fact, that the wine made as the grapes are trodden uh, to make the wine is so much and so abundant that the one treading the grapes is actually splashing it around so much that it looks like they're bathing in wine. And this kind of imagery shows fertility and joy and peace and prosperity and we see this fate, or this state, sorry, of plentiful and abundant wine. It's to come along with this special king in the line of Judah. That being Jesus. So I wonder if you've ever thought about what Jesus' first miracle was. What was it? He turned water into an abundance of wine at a wedding. Is that a mistake? I don't think so. I met someone yesterday uh, who had a real strength to him, uh, both physically and personally, and I unwittingly found myself leaning in towards him as we were chatting, um, I'd only just met the guy and I was bumping into his arm while we were, while we were talking. <laughs> it just had like this personal magnetism. Anyway, have you ever met someone like that? Who's just got a real presence about them, something magnetic, something it's hard to describe, you know, something that perhaps only poetry can capture? Well, that's Judah's promised kingly descendant who we're told in verse 44, sorry, in verse 12, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. That's Jesus, poetically. Nothing short of irresistibly magnetic. Poetic in bringing God's promised blessings to Abraham, to Jacob and to Judah, to the nations, including all the tribes of Israel, 
It's through Jesus that people the world over know God's promised blessing of forgiveness and reconciliation with God and of being with God and he with them now and forever. It's through Jesus that God lifts the curse so that we might know him redeeming death and suffering to bless us. Which brings us to the second point. As we see God's promised blessings in death. Because after he's blessed the boys, Jacob confirms God's promised blessings even in his own death and in his burial. He instructs his sons to bury him not in Egypt, but in the promised land of Canaan, in a place in Canaan that Abraham Abraham purchased, uh, verse 30, a, a place where Abraham and Sarah are buried, verse 31, a place where his father and mother, Isaac and Rebecca are buried, that is Jacob's father and mother, a place where his own wife, where Jacob's own wife Leah is buried. Why? Because there weren't nice places to be buried in Egypt? Maybe because it was cheaper to be buried in Canaan? No. I reckon it's because he wants his family. He wants all people. He wants all the Egyptians. He wants the Canaanites to know where his hope is. After all, Pharaoh and his, and his court, they hear all about it from verse 4 in chapter 50. As Joseph asks to take his father and bury him in Canaan. We see this from verse 7. So Joseph went to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Many Egyptians and all Jacob's families, they know Jacob wants to be buried in the promised land. And the Canaanites, in verse 11, we see they hear about this too. Surely all this pomp and ceremony, uh, through all this they all knew Jacob wanted to be buried in the promised land and surely they knew why or ended up finding out. To all it would have been pretty clear that Jacob was God's man, that his hope was in God's promises, even in his death and burial, perhaps even especially then, God's promises are confirmed by him. I often ask people how they'd like their funeral uh, to be run, so don't be surprised if I uh, chat to you at some stage. Not that I'm anticipating anything. A common answer that I get, uh, one that I've actually given myself, is, well, I don't care. I won't be there. Which is right. It's true, right? But I wonder if there might be a way to help others, particularly others that we love, to help them hold on to the promises of God even upon our death. I mean, it could be something that we plan to have done at our funeral. Uh, I've thought of video recording all the rubbish things that I've said and done throughout the course of my life and have it played through the eulogy. <laughs> so that any good thing is going, that's going to be spoken about me, it's, the only good thing is that I was desperately in need of forgiveness, which God promised and gave me as I trusted in Jesus for it. But then again, I suspect whoever's going to be running my funeral service won't include that. So maybe not the best thing uh, to do. Maybe not the best way to help people hold on to the promises of God, even in my death. (laughs) Maybe instead, it's to live now in such a way that when we die, that when we do die, people will know Jesus was important to us. That he's what we like to talk about the most. That he shaped what we did with our time. That he is where we put our money. How we handled life that people will say, he was a Jesus man. He was a Jesus woman. 
how he handled life, particularly when it was tough, showed us what was important to him. Which brings us to the third point. God's promised blessings in suffering. Because often, I think, we can feel the opposite. When life sucks, when things are really hard, when people treat us badly, particularly those that we thought we could trust, or when we're sick, perhaps sick with guilt, and no amount of trying to do better or positive thinking or psychotherapy or drugs can take it away. It can feel like at those moments that God's actually cursing us, not blessing us. Which might have been how Jacob's sons were feeling. As we're told after Jacob's death, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? You can understand them thinking this. After all, they treated him appallingly and he suffered big time because of it. It's not hard to imagine Joseph nurturing a pretty big grudge against them. And the brothers, they have no problems imagining this. But it's actually misguided. Joseph's totally forgiven them. Uh, But clearly the brothers, they're still troubled. Their consciences are troubled. With their dad gone, they're afraid. Their feelings of guilt remain, and so does their fear of Joseph's revenge, which leads them to actually lie and, and try to manipulate Joseph, as we read in verse 16. So... They sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. No, he didn't. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph had forgiven them years ago. Should have been clear, he's been kind to them for many years. But the brothers still think he's secretly after a revenge. It's no wonder that he weeps. But the brothers, their consciences, they're just so troubled, they, they, they lie. They, they try to manipulate Joseph, appealing to their dad, their dead father. They're desperate and confused. They talk about uh, what they did to Joseph like it was personally against God, like Joseph is God's standing. No wonder Joseph says to them in verse 19, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? No. But even this unnecessary confusion and distress, God uses it to underscore the providential way that he works. As Joseph goes on to say, in a magnificent, perhaps the highlight uh, in Genesis as a book, he says in verse 20, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. Joseph knows how God works. That he will keep his promises to bless the nations by saving many lives. And the sinful and evil plans of people, even those of his own brothers, they can't stop God fulfilling his promised blessings. Instead, he's going to redeem the evil and suffering towards those good ends. We see this through the brother's awful treatment of Joseph as a boy. We see this even through the misguided and fearful treatment of Joseph here. God takes what's broken, whether it's bad behaviour or an unnecessarily guilty conscience, and he turns these things around for the good of his people, to reassure them and to bless them with his saving love. 
We see this with Joseph and his brothers in Genesis. But, but it's kind of uh, written in small print. My eyesight's not getting better as the years go on. I've got a, uh, a couple of glasses for various pur- purposes that you may be aware of. Uh, my yellow ones I'm looking forward to wearing later. Anyway, uh, some for things up close, some for uh, things that are away. But irrespective of whether I've got glasses on or not, I now work on Word documents on my computer with the font, with a font that is like massive, huge, blown up. I'm not comfortable with a 12 font size anymore. No, no, I'm like up to 18, 22. You know, give me. That's good. That's massive. There's no way I'm going to miss a word when I can only fit two or three on a screen, right? <laughs> so, only kidding. It's about ten. Uh, well, Joseph and his brothers uh, in Genesis, it's like a, an eight-font size example of God redeeming good from evil and suffering, right? Whereas Jesus and his brothers at his crucifixion, that, that's God redeeming good from evil with suffering writ large, okay? Maybe a 200-size font, in comparison, he's the word, after all. A little bit of a Bible joke there for you. Uh, as the Apostle Peter says in the first Christian sermon to the thousands of Jews, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead. What the Jews and the Romans intended to harm and to kill Jesus, well, God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Sound familiar? People the world all over believe in Jesus for forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit with him. God took the most evil thing ever done, the crucifixion of the Son of God, of God the Son, and the most, most amount of suffering ever endured God the Son being forsaken by God the Father. Can you imagine that? That kind of suffering? The eternal? Suffering the eternal forsakenness of the Father? How do we comprehend that kind of suffering? God took that evil and he took that suffering and he turned it around and he redeemed it for the most amazing and wonderful good. The blessings of forgiveness and God being with us by the Holy Spirit, and forever, to his praise and glory. You know what that means? That means we can trust him. In every other instance of evil and suffering in our lives, like suffering at the hands that we should have been able to trust, or being weighed down, maybe unnecessarily, by the guilt of sins that Jesus has already forgiven us, Whatever the suffering is, we can trust that no matter how bad it feels now, God will redeem it for our good. As the Apostle Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God will see us through in all things. He will redeem the good from our bad. Like like he did, writ small with Jacob's sons, like he did writ large in Jesus' crucifixion, the curses of life are not the end of the story for us. No matter how battered or broken we might feel, God is redeeming us. Uh, 
Uh, kintsugi is a uh, is the Japanese art form of golden mending. I've mentioned this before, but I just think it's brilliant. It's linked to to uh, passing something on to the next generation. So when an important family tea vessel breaks, for an instance, uh, because there are many earthquakes in Japan, Japan often uh, the family of tea masters will hold on to the fragments for several generations, and then they'll give the pieces to a to a lacquer master to mend, but not to fix it like it was never broken. Instead, to accentuate the break lines with rivulets of gold. And in doing so, they make the piece even more beautiful. And in a way, the troubles of God's chosen family in Genesis, of Joseph and his brothers, was an earthquake to break them. As was Jesus' crucifixion. But only so that those broken pieces might be masterfully mended to see God beautifully bless them and the nations. Writ small through Joseph and his brothers, and ultimately writ large through Jesus, so that as we, as you and I, rely on Jesus and his broken body made beautifully resurrected for us, we might also trust that God is making a kintsugi of our own broken lives. That at the end of the day, although we can't see it now, and perhaps feel only the curses of death and suffering crushing our spirits and breaking us down, that God will redeem all those sufferings. He'll take our broken pieces and he'll make us into something much better than than what we were before we were broken. Something beautiful. Something blessed. There's a 2003 film called The Cooler. It's about a man named Bernie with near professionally bad luck. He works in a casino. Uh, by standing near people to stop them from winning. But something happens in this story. A girl like that he likes falls in love with him. And with that, the curse of his cooling lifts. He starts winning at everything. And even though it's still a rough ride for him, he escapes the clutches of his possessive casino boss and he drives into the sunset with the love of his life next to him. Yeah, sorry. Bit of a spoiler. Well, a bit like this. In Jesus, we know the greatest love of our lives. And it's because of him the curse of death and suffering has been lifted so that we can be sure, no matter how bad the road gets in this life, no matter how broken we might feel, at the end of the day, with Jesus, it's all going to be okay. Better than that, it's going to be beautiful. And even though the demons might rage intending to crush us and harm us, God's going to turn it around for our good, as he promised. So let's cling to that. Let's cling to his loving promises in Jesus. Yeah. Find them in the scriptures. Cling on to them. Promises like that he, he loves and forgives us no matter what. Promises that he gives us wisdom as we ask for it in in our struggles. Promises that he'll never leave us. Not now, not ever. I've noticed that some people who are really feeling the weight of their life when things are really rough and, and hard, sometimes all they need is someone to hug them and tell them that it's going to be okay. Well, I reckon the book of Genesis, as we finish it off today, is God's hug in Jesus. It's his words in your ear. And please listen to this. 
I've got this, everything is going to be all right. And I'm going to pray that we know that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for your immense wonder and kindness to us in Jesus. That not even the evils and sufferings of this world can stop you getting what you want. Your blessings that you promised in Jesus to us. Help us to trust you, the one who redeems all things for our good. So that we might know you and know that you are always with us. That you will never leave us. That you love us to death and beyond. And to cling to your promises and to your promised blessings. Particularly when things are hard and rough. Knowing that you have the power to turn them around for our good and will. We thank you that we see this done through Joseph and his brothers. We thank you that we see this done amazingly and ultimately in Jesus and his crucifixion. In that supreme evil and suffering that you turned around for good, incredible good. And so we cling to the way that you work, that we've seen you work, that we know you work through, in and through Jesus and trust that you will do the same for us in our evil and the evil and suffering that we endure in this life, knowing that you will turn it around for our good too as we hold fast to Jesus and your loving promises in him. Amen.